Well, good morning, ECC. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 14. We're looking at verses 7 through 24. Before we jump into our text, I want to tell you about the first time I flew first class on a domestic flight in the U.S. I was upgraded due to my bottom level tier status, silver status with Delta Airlines in the U.S. I was flying, I think, from Spokane to Minneapolis, this short little three-hour flight, so it's a small plane. And I actually got an email 24 hours before uh, the flight saying, you've been upgraded. I couldn't tell you how excited I was. Uh, This had never happened before. There's no way I would ever really pay to fly first class. But there I was, ready to go on this plane. So I got to the airport, and I got to use a special check-in line for first class passengers. Uh, I went to the gate, and I was in another special line for uh, getting on the plane, and I was one of the first people on the plane as first class, and I saw eight seats just tightly grouped there, and really they're only like four inches bigger than the economy seats, but it doesn't matter because it was first class, right? And I sat down, and they actually offered a pre-flight beverage, and they brought around this little snack wicker basket that had nuts and fruit and candy bars. Nothing says first class like a Kit Kat. So there I sat with my ginger ale and my half-eaten Kit Kat bar, and I refused to make eye contact with the economy passengers as they came on. And this is how they get you. They, They make you feel special. In that moment, you're like, I am first class. And airlines spend millions of dollars to make people feel this way in their frequent flyer programs. Because you'll be more likely to fly with them again if you can get that same level of service. And friends, isn't this our own hearts? Are we not always striving for recognition, for status? Don't we long to be a silver, gold, platinum, diamond, prestige, excellently, aspire, whatever? We want to be treated with a higher level of honor higher level of respect and privilege. The Pharisees in Jesus' day didn't want a better level of service for travel. They saw themselves as being morally superior to everyone else. They were the law keepers. They were the favored ones of God, or so they believed. But as we will see in our text this morning, Jesus has a way of exposing religious hypocrisy. And in this series of parables, he reveals that the kingdom of God is not to be obtained by the people that think that they own it, the Pharisees themselves. Instead, it will be given to the very people that the Pharisees exclude. The poor, crippled, the blind, and the lame. So turn with me now to Luke chapter 14. Let's read Luke 14, 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come, 
and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit with the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be, be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been, who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Father in heaven, we pray that this morning you would instruct us from your word. I pray that you would enlighten our minds. Show us the truth of scripture. I pray that you'd reveal to us what you would have for us, Lord. Teach us this morning. May we see the, the truth of the kingdom as Jesus speaks in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning comes from Luke 14, 7 through 24. And in Luke 1 through 7, we find out it is the Sabbath day. And Jesus has been invited to dine with the leader of the Pharisees, with a bunch of Pharisees. This is likely the last time Jesus will eat in the home of the Pharisees. Up until this point in his ministry, Jesus has some blistering critiques of this religious group. You see, the Pharisees are one of those religious groups in the time of Jesus who had the most power. In fact, they were, uh, had tremendous political influence. They had the influence in the temple as well. And they were considered experts on the law. But as Jesus points out, they frequently held their own traditions above the biblical teaching of the law. And this is why Jesus calls them out for his healing of a man, of a man sick on the Sabbath. There's a man who comes to this feast. He's there, maybe a servant, and it says that he has dropsy. Dropsy is when you have like an edema. You're, I'm not a doctor. Some of you are doctors, right? You, where you have uh, body parts actually swelling with, with fluid, and it's very painful. It's a very ugly disease and certainly can be fatal. And so Jesus asks uh, the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees don't respond. They remain silent, it says in verse 4. They have no wisdom. They have nothing 
to say before Jesus to refute his teaching on the law. And so Jesus heals this man of his terrible disease and sends him away. This is not the the best start to a dinner. If Jesus is there to just play nice and not offend anyone, he's not doing that very well. But this is the setting of chapter 14. Our whole passage consists of two parables. The parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the great banquet. And Jesus gives these parables in the midst of a feast that he has himself been invited to. Who do you think Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees. Christ comes out uh, to this feast in the midst of the religious elite and proceeds to make it very uncomfortable. And Jesus shows why their feast is an empty show that highlights their pride and displays their spiritual bankruptcy. This is not what the Pharisees were expecting. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees clearly see that Jesus is a great teacher. He may be even a prophet. I mean, he's doing miracles. Uh, The people certainly love Jesus. Let's do this as the Pharisees. Let's invite Jesus to our meal, and some of that prestige can rub off on us. Jesus is the rising star. We'll catch some of that stardust, and then we will remain the religious elite of Israel. Just like our parable last week of the rich fool, the Pharisees are wanting to use Jesus for their own personal gain. What they don't realize is that Jesus has come to reveal their own emptiness. By the way, I want to take a moment to help define for us what is this kingdom of God that we keep talking about. Someone asked me last week, what is the kingdom of God? So I think it's helpful to just give you a short definition, a short explanation. Really, the kingdom of God is the realm and ruling of God through his son, Jesus Christ. You don't find the term kingdom of God in the Old Testament. You have all the uh, prophecies, all the prescribing, the future look of, of the coming of the one who would bring the kingdom of God, namely Jesus. It's everything that the Old Testament pointed to in terms of the future rule of this God. And now Jesus has come. Jesus has come and he's announced the kingdom of God is here and is present. But it also has a future reality. You and I, we live in that time where we've heard in the God's word that Jesus has come, it's been announced, the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet there is a future full realization of it at the end of the age that we'll get to experience. The, the Pharisees expected that they were part of the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus reveals it's far different than what they expected. So Jesus is going to turn upside down their understanding of the kingdom of God. How does Jesus do this? Well, he reveals three requirements for those who would seek to gain the kingdom of God. Three requirements for those who seek the kingdom of God. Here are these three requirements. Number one, the kingdom of God requires heartfelt humility. Heartfelt humility. Number two, the kingdom of God requires genuine generosity. Genuine generosity. And number three, the kingdom of God requires extrinsic eligibility. Extrinsic eligibility. 
Okay, that may seem like a mouthful. I'm going to go ahead and explain it in time here. But let's start in verse 7 and look at this requirement. The kingdom of God requires heartfelt humility. Verse 7 says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So all this while, Jesus has been walking around doing ministry in Israel, and the Pharisees are the ones sitting looking at him doing it, critiquing what he is doing. And now Jesus is in the place where he's sitting among them, and he's watching what they are doing. And as they go to this feast, they're all choosing the seat that they want to sit, the seat they think they they deserve. So, uh, he sees this, and he says to them, in verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Banquets in Jesus' time were important social gatherings where one displayed their status. So if you're of a high rank, you got to sit closest to the host in the banquet. If you were of low social rank, you had to sit farther away from the host. So there would be an explicit order to the organizing of who sits where in this honor-shame culture. Imagine taking the place that you think you deserve at this long table, and you're enjoying refreshment and conversation, and then the master of ceremonies comes to your side of your table, and then along with some other person that's supposed to sit where you are, and he says, hey, I need you to give up your seat and move down there because this person's more honored than you, and this is really embarrassing and awkward. How shamed would you be? How embarrassing is that? But this is the heart of the matter with the Pharisees. They are shameless in their self-promotion. The root of their sin is this prideful heart, one that is so warped that in their thinking they have this right to claim a seat at the table of God's banquet. Notice it's not just any banquet. This is the wedding feast. So imagine if you're at a wedding reception hardly know anybody there, barely know, maybe you don't know anybody there, maybe you just barely got in, but you decide you're going to go sit next to the bride or the groom. I mean, in American culture, that'd be just so embarrassing, (laughs) so wrong. How can you think that you have the right to do that? What do you think people would say to that kind of behavior? In verse 10, Jesus says, but when you are invited, Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Instead of assuming that you know your right standing in the wedding feast, take the place of humility, of a low position. By the way, I think this picture of a wedding feast is actually really appropriate because in the Old Testament, it is God who's depicted as a husband of the bride that is Israel. And therefore, in this parable, it is God who is inviting, literally calling those to come to the wedding feast. He's the one who's making sure people sit in their proper places. By the way, if if you come to the feast, no one will be left out of place. No one who humbly walks before the Lord will be forgotten. Instead, they will be exalted. And conversely, even the haughty, the prideful person will be brought low. 
So as one author put it, it is far better to be humble than to be humiliated. Friends, Jesus is not merely commending to the Pharisees or to you or to me to take on this new work of being humble. That somehow humility is a badge of honor that you and I can earn and wear. You and I can never be humble enough to meet God's standard. Jesus is the very embodiment of humility. He condescended down to earth, took on the low form of human flesh, and gave his life to ransom ours. In the new birth that comes in Christ, we get his righteousness, but we also get his humility. He is the humble one who humbled himself on the point, to the point of death on the cross, which is why his name is exalted far above all others, as it says in Philippians 2. So for Christians, we are sanctified, and we're also being sanctified. We are humble because of Christ's humility, and we are being made more and more humble. I wonder if you see that this is a good goal for yourself as you get older, as you rise higher in your job, maybe you're gaining more prestige, status in life. Are you pursuing humility in Christ? Do you and I believe Jesus' promise that in the kingdom of God, all those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those exalted will be humbled? This is a sure promise that we can count on. So we've seen heartfelt humility. The second thing that the kingdom of God requires is a genuine generosity. Genuine generosity. In the first parable, Jesus addressed those who are the Pharisees of the banquet, those who've been invited, calling them out for their pride and their arrogance. In the second part of our passage, Jesus speaks to the one who is throwing the party, the host himself. Verse 12 says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus is telling him who not to invite. The Pharisees were in the habit of practicing hospitality, whereby they really only invited one another. They knew they were going to be, repay each other with a similar meal. In fact, they expected to be repaid to all those they invited. It was just constantly insular, going back and forth to each other's home. So really, the, the practice of having these kinds of meals requires no sacrifice. Not when you expect repayment. Instead, Jesus says in verse 13, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what the Pharisees were doing here were protecting their own group. They saw themselves as elite, the privileged class of the people. They are the ones who enjoyed political power, and they saw themselves as those who are keeping the law, adding to the tradition. And the parties that they held were not open invitations welcoming people outside of their social circle, but rather served as a way of protecting the integrity of their group. Of course, if we're happy to invite Jesus to our group, right? Jesus can add to the prestige of our group. Jesus is somebody we want to help benefit us. 
But there is zero value in adding the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They cannot invite you back. They're probably undesirable to be around. Friends, Jesus' instruction is not just to oppose the Pharisees uh, here and expose pride and selfishness of their hearts. It's for us as well. Who are the people in your life that represent the inner circle that you will invite, that you'll constantly go to, that it's really comfortable for you to always have in your home? Who are those that you wouldn't want to associate with? Those who are undesirable, that you would rather not welcome. I don't think that Jesus is spiritualizing the poor, the crippled, blind, and lame only. I think he's generally pointing out these are the ones who are least in the society. And he's just saying, invite them in, feed them, welcome them. By the way, I don't think this is a passage saying never do hospitality with your friends or fellow church members. We just talked about going to Alwada. We're going to go there. We're going to have hospitality. We're going to hang out as a church. That's a good thing to do, to practice this kind of hospitality in the church. Please keep doing that. But there's something different when you invite the outcast and the blind and the poor and the crippled and the lame, those who cannot repay you. Jesus says you get a reward when you do that. He promises that kind of hospitality, welcoming those people in. It's not just feeding them either. You're welcoming them in to that meal in which you sit as equals. You welcome them into relationship. You welcome them in to sharing everything you have with them. There is a reward promise to show this kind of hospitality, to welcome them in. Are there people groups, classes of people, certain ethnicities that we have an inherent bias against? How are you and I doing in seeking out the most out there people, the most distant from our group? What kind of person, the kind of person whom the world would say there is, they are of no value? Well, when I was in seminary in Minneapolis, we lived in a rough neighborhood that was very poor. One night in our, we were in our basement apartment, the next door apartment uh, caught fire. It wasn't a really bad fire, but the fire department came and they had to hose it down. And it's the middle of winter, so it's, everything's all wet. Everybody had to evacuate the building. So I go outside, and I see one of my church, uh, fellow church members, and she's standing there with uh, a woman and two kids. So she rushes over to me with these women and two kids. She's like, says to this woman, uh, hey, this is Will. He's one of my fellow church members. We go to the same church. Uh, you can stay with him uh, until you, you know, for as long as you need. That's what she said. And I remember just going, thanks. This is great. Um, so this mom and her two kids, these two boys, come into our basement home. The husband's at work at this point. He's going to come back soon. So we really only have to host them for a few hours. But it, it's a tight space, right? And three extra people, it makes it very tight. So we're trying to feed the kids. We're trying to entertain them. And it is just crazy. I think there was a developmental issue with one of the children. I think some sort of issue uh, because uh, he kept pooping his pants. I mean, it was just like really a hard situation. They're running everywhere. Uh, and honestly, 
I look back at the time, it was one of the hardest things uh, I think I've ever had to go through. And I, I, it really wasn't like that crazy. I'm making it sound like it's this massive thing. It wasn't. The problem is, it's like, I look back and I look at my heart and I realize like, I was not seeing this with spiritual eyes. Here's an opportunity to welcome somebody into our home who needs it desperately. Fell right in my face, in my lap. And instead, all I can think about is when are they going to leave? It's not my finest moment. And I look back at that time of grief. I mean, I look at how unwilling, unable, unspiritual I was in welcoming this mother and her two kids. Friends, we are to be those who welcome the destitute, the outcast, the unwanted, the unloved, the poor people in our lives. Because as we're going to see in the next passage, that's really who we are. And that's who Jesus is inviting to his wedding feast. All of us are merely blind, crippled, poor, lame people, unable to do anything for ourselves. And inviting these people into fellowship, we are imitating Christ as his disciples. We're continuing the work of calling everyone who are his to come to the banquet. So friends, Jesus is telling us that a genuine generosity invites those who cannot repay you in kind. Don't be afraid to pour out your generosity on the blind, the poor, the lame, and the crippled. Welcome them into your life, and you will be blessed. You will be repaid. There is a reward. It's just a future one that will come in the banquet. Friends, I pray that the Lord would give you these opportunities, but that he would also give you a heart to obey him. And I pray that you wouldn't be like me back in seminary, unable to see the great opportunity of welcoming the most destitute in my home. Here's another principle I want to focus on from this passage. Christians, don't miss this. We are looking for that future fulfillment of all the promises that Jesus has made about the kingdom. There is a not yet to these promises of repayment, promises of fulfillment. We as Christians are awaiting a future reality. It takes patience. It takes a hope that's firmly set in Christ as he promises this for us. This is the treasures in heaven that we talked about last week that we are to store up. So the kingdom of God requires a heartfelt humility, a genuine generosity. Third, and finally, the kingdom of God requires extrinsic eligibility. Okay, so this is one of those moments as a, as a preacher where I was trying to line up H-H-G-G-E-E, trying to find the right word. I picked extrinsic, okay? And I'm going to explain it in just a moment, but I just want to say, Sham is over there. Sham was with me. I gave him the outline. He said it was good. So if you don't get it, it's his fault. He said it was fine. I'm going to explain it. I think we'll get it. The text is going to help us make sense of this here. Verse 15 says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You can almost feel the awkwardness at this point. Jesus has just been scorching the Pharisees on their lack of humility and total lack of generosity. 
And then this man pipes up, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I think this is the turning point in the meal, actually. Maybe this guy was trying to break up the tension here. Jesus is obviously spoiling this party where, hey, it's like, hey, we're all the religious elite Jesus, right? So we're all in the same time. Why are you constantly criticizing us? We're all going to eat bread in the kingdom of God, Jesus. Let's just chill out, right? And Jesus responds with a parable to this man in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Jesus gives this parable of the great banquet, this great feast of all those who will be in the kingdom. The master sends his servant to welcome those who are invited in, but they all make excuses. One has bought a field, one has bought a bunch of oxen, one has gotten married, and they're not able to come. You know, some scholars have pointed this out and saying, this is terrible, these excuses are obviously uh, wrong, and it only insults the master of ceremonies. It only insults this guy throwing the banquet, insulting God himself. But I think actually reading this, all of these excuses are just normal. They have legitimate commitments that an Israelite would have, that you and I have. Indeed, in Deuteronomy 24.5, it explicitly says that a newly married man would be exempt from military service for one year in order to care for his new bride. So I think one scholar suggests that there is this category of property, buying a field, occupation, representing the farmer who is making an investment in oxen, and family, this new marriage that's being formed. These represent the three main commitments in life. And as the example of the three people invited to the banquet, these are the three main idols that keep one from the kingdom of God. Every one of us has these three things represented in our lives, right? We have family. You've got property. You have, a, you have a job that you have to go to. In no way is God saying any of these things are somehow evil and wrong. In fact, the Bible talks uh, at length, giving us instruction in how to live wisely in light of all those things. But these three things should not keep us from answering the master's call to come to the banquet. The good commitments of property, occupation, and family can turn into evil idols when we value them or hold them more important than God himself. When comparing the things of this life with the God who made heaven and earth, there can be no competition. God wins every single time. Jesus came to seek the lost, to save those for whom he died, to ransom lost sinners. Jesus' blood is the invitation signed, sealed, and delivered to this great feast. The only proper response is to leave everything in this life and to wholly surrender yourself to Jesus, who is your life, and follow him. This is why it says in verse 20 that the master of the house became angry. 
It says, Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what do you have commanded has been done? And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who, invite, who were invited shall taste my banquet. The Messianic Supper of the Lamb of God will be full. It's going to happen. It will not be delayed. And the reason why is because everyone that is there will be there by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, all those at this banquet, this feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the age are there to bring glory to Jesus. Their presence is less about them and more about the glorious Savior who is merciful, who is good and righteous, who is the very picture of humility and generosity. You know who's not going to be there? Those who will not come. In this passage, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who think they have already obtained it. They are the chosen people of God. In the chosen profession of God, they are constantly congratulating one another in their hypocrisy. Born of Abraham, sons of Abraham, they believe they have an intrinsic right to the kingdom of God. Meaning, they believe believe in their very nature. Deep down, as they're born, they have a reason why they deserve the kingdom. But Jesus is saying that everyone who will come to the kingdom of God will be eligible because of what is extrinsic to them. Meaning, not natural, not internal, but something that is external. None of us will deserve it. The effectual call of God to faith in Jesus Christ is not something that we manufacture or produce. We have to be called, invited by the master of the banquet. And he is the one who creates in us the right response to that call. This is the difference between the invitation to those making excuses and those who respond. God creates in his people the right response to his call. Friends, the kingdom of God requires a heartfelt humility, a genuine generosity, and an extrinsic eligibility. In our passage this morning, those who first receive the invitation fail to respond, fail to see it is Jesus who is the one calling him to his banquet. The Pharisees invited Jesus to their feast so that he would lend a bit of prestige to their party. And Jesus invites the Pharisees to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but they don't recognize the importance of this invitation. They're preoccupied with their idols. They would rather sit in their table with themselves congratulating one another, jockeying for position in the sight of men, and cannot see what Jesus offers them. Instead, the invitation has gone out only to those who can claim no merit to it. The, the blind, the poor, the crippled, and the lame. Everyone invited to Jesus' feast has in no way any ability to Repay him. He gives it freely. Maybe you are here this morning, you're not a believer. Welcome. Jesus invites you to this feast to dine with him in the kingdom of God. 
And you may feel like you're unworthy, that you don't deserve this kind offer. Don't worry. You don't. No one does. This is a gracious gift from God. Talk to any one of his pastors or elders after the service. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. What is the nature of this feast? And for followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, know that there is nothing about you, in you, from you, that got you this invitation from God. It is in his plan and purpose, perfect plan. God is the one who initiates the call. He is the one who has sent Jesus, his son. And as his disciples, as those who are in Christ, we are to go about doing the very work of our master. He was, he was humble, so too are we to be humble. He was generous, sacrificial, so are we to be also. Christ came to seek the lost. We too proclaim to a lost and dying world the good news of Jesus Christ. You are invited to the feast of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Just come and let nothing hinder you from responding to the King. Father in heaven, how can we possibly come to a banquet and believe we have any standing? We have none. We are those who are not only blind, crippled, lame, poor. We are those who are in the very outer lanes, the hedges. We had no knowledge. We had no understanding dead to any sort of invitation. And yet you sent Jesus who comes to rescue. Jesus who comes to die on the cross, to make effectual a calling, an invitation to the feast. And so, Father, I pray that we would see the trusting and believing to come to the feast is to recognize we bring nothing. To recognize that we've received everything. So, Lord, I pray you'd make us humble. You'd make us a generous people that long to give praise to you and to store up a reward in heaven as we proclaim Christ to this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.